Welcome to The Eventful Entrepreneur. I'm Roger Woodall, founder of the Bournemouth Sevens, the world's largest sport and music festival. With all events in 2020 grinding to a halt, I'll be bringing people back together, but in a different way. This week, I had a brilliant chat with my mate Kenny Logan. We talk about him milking cows blindfolded on his farm in Scotland, becoming an international rugby player, winning loads of titles with Wasps, going on Strictly Come Dancing with his two left feet and his relationship with the lovely Gabby Logan. And all of this whilst hiding his dyslexia up until the age of 30. We're 12 episodes in and this podcast is flying at the moment. That's all down to you. So I really appreciate if you could just subscribe, leave us a review on Apple. We read every single one of them. And if you want to get me personally, get me on Instagram as I reply to everybody. It's at Eventful Entrepreneur or Roger Woodall or Dodge. But for now, here's the man himself, Mr. Kenny Logan. I think a lot of people know you from being a Scottish rugby player and playing for Wasps and what have you and obviously married to the lovely Gabby. Let's go a little bit, let's go a little bit earlier than that. What, what was your life like in Scotland as a kid growing up? Do you know, my life was pretty good as a farmer's son. You know, loved being outside. Um, just normal old life, you know. And, it, and my life sort of really changed when I went to school because I realised that it wasn't as much fun as it was on the farm. Um, I lived up with my cousins who were, you know, farmers, rugby players. And then as the school went on, I started to realise I was different. It wasn't the fact that I smelt differently. <laughs> <laughs> I just, I, I really struggled at school education-wise from mm. a point of view of, I was good with numbers, but I wasn't very good with them pulling the letters together. Mm. And I just genuinely thought it would come and the light would come on, but it never really came on. And um, it has now, to be fair. But um, during the school days, for me, it was, I used to get a lot of tension because I was, you, you start believing you're thick and stupid, you know, that's the thing. And I speak to a lot of kids who struggle at school and they believe that they're just, they're thick or they're stupid. And, and, I, and I started to potentially believe that a little bit because I was struggling and all these other kids were sort of flying off. And, you know, and, and, and I was always thinking, I was quite always very much open to new things and thinking how I can change things. And I think what happened to me, um, the sort of change in time for me was when I was about 13, 14. Mm because I realized that I wasn't going to learn to read because I'd gone through that period every day. I go, right, I'm, I'm smashing to school every day. Mm. I just couldn't get through it. Mm. So I just, when I was at school, I just thought, right, I've just got to get to 16 and go and work on the farm. And, um, and what's that? Was that your old man's farm, was it? Yeah, my old man's farm. Yep. And then, you know, listen to your podcast earlier about how you started. And, you know, my first business to set up was a log, selling logs to other people around the, the farming community, you know, other little houses and cottages. So I said to my dad, um, I said, well, what are you doing with all these trees lying around the back of the farm? Went, Nothing. I said, can I have them? Went, what are you going to do with them? I said, I'm going to sell logs. Neighbours going to buy logs. Yeah. So I got the chainsaw out at 14, 13, 14, cut these, all these logs up, got 150 bags, went to, the far, went to my tractor man and said, right, Saturday morning, give you a tenner, we'll drive around. So I came back, 150 bags, gone, 150 quid, pound a bag. So I'm like, I could do this every week. And I, I did it all through the summer. And my dad said to us, uh, growing up, if whatever you earn, uh, I'll match for your first car. So I got to six, 17, I had five and a half grand in the bank. And my dad says, where'd you get that from? I said, all the logs. He went, no, he didn't. I went, yes, I did. So he put another five and a half grand in, so he got 11 grand. I bought a car for three grand. 
And my dad says to you, how much is that car? I went, three grand. He went, what'd you do with the rest of it? Savings, dad. Stashed. Stashed. <laughs> so I'd already, early on, I realised that I needed to do something myself because I was never going to be able to probably walk into an office or turn up to a job interview and have that confidence of saying, right, I can do this. I needed to be entrepreneurial in my own sense. And then, sadly, my cousin died, who was like my hero, at 17. And my dad died two years later. And between all that, I was playing rugby for my local rugby club and first team then. And those days, you played for Glasgow, Edinburgh, the Borders. And I was in the Glasgow team at 17. Then within a year, I was in the Scotland set up. And then at 19, I'm picked to play for Scotland. And at that time, my dad just died after um, my rugby. Once I'd gone to Australia, I got my first cap. It was 1992. Shit, that was a long time ago. And my dad died three months after. So he saw me playing for Scotland. But then I had two older brothers who weren't, didn't show much interest in the farm a little bit. And my mum said to me, right, who's going to run the farm? And I went, all right, typical. Put my hand up. Mm. And went, yeah, I'll do it. Mm. And then I went, how am I going to do that? What sort of farm is it? It was a dairy and animal farms, 300 acres, well, 150 did, cows. Did you used to milk cows? Yeah, just the odd one, officially. <laughs> officially. <laughs> did you ever do it blindfolded? I could tell you some things I've done blindfolded. <laughs> <laughs> it's a lot. When you get when you know where yeah. they are, it's easy. <laughs> <laughs> Imagine the room with the, the lights off. No, so, yeah. <laughs> Let's do it. <laughs> lights. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, so you went back onto the farm, and were you like run? Did you run the business on the farm? Yes, yeah, so I was running the business, and I had no. Uh, I'd learned by talking, asked a lot of questions. You know, I would be speaking to my neighbour and farmer who was a lot older. What'd you do this? What'd you do with that? And then I had a reali realize that loads of people come in to sell stuff to your farmers. So I had a document that I knew was a good document yeah. of farm planning, what you put cereals you're putting in what um, spraying you put on the crops, and I had one that was really bad. Mm. So I would go to a guy would come in, say, what do you think this? And the guy would go, oh, that's a great idea. I can get you all that stuff. Never came back again. I told him that document's crap. Yeah. He says, yeah, you talk rubbish. So I used to sometimes put a crap document in front of people who are trusted, and they would go, Kenny, well, you're not going to do this. That's ludicrous. I'm like, oh, just checking. <laughs> and one day I put it in front of one guy, and the guy went, this is not a bad idea. I went, no, it's starting to bullshit me. Mm. And I said, I'm losing respect for you. And he went, and he retracted because he realized that I'd, I'd got him. So I was, I was always, because I had no other way of reading it or, and the first thing I did was get a bookkeeper in. And it was bizarre. So when I told, came out about being dyslexic, I was about 30 years old and told people I couldn't read and write and severely dyslexic. Is that right? Yeah. Wow. So I didn't learn to read until I was 30 years old. Wow. So I was, I couldn't, you know, I could literally, I, I would, I, I, that would have allowed a wallet with my address in it. Because I would struggle to even do my dress. Is that because you were brought up in Scotland on a farm and education wasn't a big thing? Was that something that you just didn't get at school? Or did you just focus on sport or being an entrepreneur? What was, what was your well, route, route away from covering up? The not sport being was the thing. Yeah. You know, I was good at rugby. I was good at, I was fast. I was good at most sports. So mm. I was, I, I would go into sports field and thrive yeah. and get my, my self-esteem from it. Yeah. But when I was in the classroom, I was like, you know, I was just a shy really scared kid and you know and I, st and I look now I mean, at one stage I was off school for three months mm. and the doctor said there's nothing wrong with him but I was probably going through some sort of yeah. depression or whatever I just couldn't get myself out of it and I couldn't see a way out mm. as a young kid because you know when, you, when I was growing up you were just thick and stupid mm. you weren't dyslexic or dyspraxic yeah. or ADHD yeah. and all yeah, these yeah, things yeah, now yeah. so I was just and and when you're told you're stupid and you know deep down you're not and mm. there's more than that and mm. 
I had a PE teacher who became a really good friend of mine. Actually, my first business, I set up with him because I trusted him. And he, he used to say to me, look, just don't worry about your school. Just keep working what you're doing. And you're a good lad and you're polite and you're, you're honest. And he was saying all the things that I believe in, but the bit that I wanted to be good at, I just couldn't grasp it. I just couldn't get my head around it. And I would worry. And every time I would walk to school, I just got this stomachache all day. And then it would, as the day went on, I would walk away from school. It would disappear. So I never had that horrible tension inside. And, you know, I probably only got rid of that when I was about... 30, 31, you know, I could, it's more confident to talk That's about That's really interesting to hear. I kind of had the same feeling. But what I found was is that I'd have that same feeling going walking into an exam. I still have nightmares probably once or twice a year. I wake up even now at mm. my age and go, <gasps> exam. Oh, yeah. I'm not doing any more exams in my life. What a lovely feeling. <sighs> Never did one. No, no, no. I sat Crazy, in my English it? exam. It's hilarious. Yeah. Sat down in this room with 100 people and sat there going, right, I'll write my name. Yeah. Well, <laughs> 10 minutes. <laughs> Oh, shall I go to the toilet? I got up, walked to the teacher. Just where are you going? So I'm leaving. Yeah. Protect the box. I'm yeah. here. Yeah. I'm not coming back. Yeah. She went, what do you mean not coming back? You know I can't read. Mm. You know I've struggled all the last five or six years at the school. Mm. So what's the point of me staying in this exam for another two hours? Yeah. Kicked the doors and never looked back. Mm. And that was it. Just next so did you, did you find as you went on later on in your life that you were still covering this, covering it up? Oh, yeah, I was you, were you up. open, were you no, open no, no. completely to anyone and said... Jeez, I can't read and write. Or were you just going through life being you, you a bubbly personality, a networker, and opening doors? What was your what was your So I'd walk route? in a room like this today and the first yeah. thing I'd see is a pen and paper. Mm. I think, right, how do I get out of here? Mm. How do I so I would be doing some interviews, um, I was all right in front of the camera, but if somebody said, right, so for like for example, the Scotland training sessions, I'd turn up, I'd go to the change rooms or the, the team room first, and I'd literally go in and say, right, papers, pens, right. I need, how do I get myself out of this? Blackboard, right? I, mean, I need to sit somewhere that they can't see me, but I can see them. Uh, and they need to be able to see that I'm in, this, in, in the room. And I need to try and get somebody else to do that writing for me. So I'd be, I'd maybe turn up late to the team meeting, get a bollocking, so nobody would ask me any questions. Yeah. Or I'd maybe say, oh, Dodge, you'd write that down. I'll go and get a cup of tea. And you'll go, ah, your name, bother. You write it down and go, there you go. And then I'd go, I wonder what that says. Yeah. You know, so I, and then I would try and write. I would try and go out. I would try and write. But then I'd write something and I'd look at it and go, <clears throat> can't you read it? <laughs> so it was really hard. And, you know, all my rugby guys just thought I was just a bit um, bit lazy, turned up late, disorganised, but I was there before everybody. I was there well before everybody to check the room out. So I got really nervous. And, and when I was training, I didn't know a move because it was all written down. Maybe talked about it on the blackboard. I'd just say, I need to stretch my hamstring. I'd get somebody else to run the move and I'd watch them. And go, I've got it. Right, okay. And go back in. Yeah. So I really struggled with moves and I really had to, it was, ex some training sessions were exhausting. Mm. If I finished the training session, I was exhausted by mentally having to think about all these moves mm. and the names. So uh, I got through it and I got through it by, I've got to do something in this game that takes away that negative point of me forgetting a move or running a line that was a totally wrong line. I remember Gregor Townsend saying, just, just, read, the, just read the script, man. And I'm like, yeah, yeah, yeah. So I'd go and look at all the diagrams. And I'd say, the diagrams? He went, yeah, they, they don't, the diagrams are rubbish. You need to read the script. And I'm like, oh. I used to panic. You know, my first Scotland trip to Australia, I was 19 years old, got picked. Do you know what I was scared about? Go on. Having to sing the song in front of the team if I got a cap. I was 19 years old. What, the fear? The fear of fear, singing a song or the, the national anthem? I was singing a song that I wouldn't be able to read, the tour song. Right, okay. 
And the fear of doing that was the bit that was scared me more than any the whole trip. Yeah. You know, I went um, and the other, I went the on the flight there. I'm thinking of the flight. I'm 19 years old, never been away from home really. I can't read and write, and I'm sitting there and bring these landing cars around. What is this? Oh, Excuse me. Yeah. Nobody told me about this. <laughs> They told me not to it's forget my passport. It's a test on the plane. <laughs> the last thing you need a test. <laughs> and why if you don't fill it out, you won't get into the country. Oh, my God. Yeah. So I'm now going, so I'm sitting next to Doddy Weir, right? Mm. And I said, like, give me that just to make sure I've done properly so I fill it in. <sighs> Happy days. Yeah. Done. Yeah. So I get to the passport control, confidence brass, boom. There's the ticket. There's my passport. Guy looks at me and goes, mate, you're not Doddy Weir. I filled his in. <laughs> I filled it in totally. I've just copied everything. Have you copied put my name in. Equality. And he looks at me and I just go, <laughs> and everyone's going, come on, hurry up, like that. And the guy went, oh, give me, I'll fill it in for you. And I'm like, oh, no, thanks very much. You don't realise, you know, I was like, so that guy who let me in mm. to Australia saved my life yeah. because I'd have been still sitting at that yeah. passport. <laughs> but I was ashamed of speaking about it. Mm. That was the thing for so me. So this was at 19. So when did 19. you first open up then? Um, 30. And what, tell me that story. So Where were you? Why so did you open I, up? And why so did you build this all up? to? Because to I wasn't brave enough to tell him. Okay. I was scared because I thought you would, you know, if I done this when I was 21, I, I th my opinion, my thoughts, you would go, stupid, isn't it? Stay, give me. Mm. Can't read. Because mm. that's how I grew up. So every time somebody said somebody can't read, it goes, oh, it's because he's thick. Oh, his mum and dad were thick. You know, like that. So yeah. I, yeah, and I didn't understand what dyslexia was. Yeah. I didn't get told I was dyslexia until I was about 16. I'd left school, and I just said, well, "What does that mean?" She well, goes, oh. No one really spoke about it back then. No, it was a sh yeah. it was it was. No, it's like, oh, my son's like, brilliant. Yeah, what a result! <laughs> he'll be a great entrepreneur. Yeah. he'll be really good at this, yeah. and he'll think differently, and we'll employ him as soon as he comes out of school. Yeah. it's like yeah. totally changed yeah. days now. What it was, yeah. And um, it's actually when I first met Gabby. Um, you what know, age she, were you? When you um, first met? 26, 26, 26, almost twenty-seven. And you know when Texan came out, I was mm. like, that's all right. I mean, what's the chances? <laughs> and then suddenly people are texting me, I'm going, oh my God, what are you doing? Delete. Never saw it. Turn my eye away. Can you get my text? No. Nah. You must have sent the wrong number. What do you want? I just sent you a text. That's, I'm following you. What, what, what do you want? I sent you a text. Well, I didn't see it. So I was constantly. Okay. And it became another thing. Oh, here's another yeah. layer for me to worry yeah. about. And then I suppose as it went on, um, I got, I was just got good to walk into a room, keep myself away from situations. Um, I would, uh, you know, I remember going to uh, hurt my, hurt my leg, going to see a specialist, and says, "Oh, you filled this form," and so I went into <laughs> 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 I put my hand in a sling like that, my right hand like this, and she goes, uh, "What's wrong?" I said, "You need to fill that." Can I do it? Cool. I literally had all these little excuses yeah. up my. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it, got, it was getting tiring because you yeah. just. You know, as you walk in the room, the first thing you're going, right, how do I get the reading? How do I get this? Yeah. And then um, I suppose when I met Gabby, um, she started, she loves texting. Like, you know, proper communicator on text. I'm like, ah, right, first text, here we go. So I said, I'll catch you up later on, sweetheart. I'll catch you up later on, sweet heat. Sweet heat. <laughs> she's going, hmm. You just spelt sweetheart, sweet heat. <laughs> so then she goes, uh, and I'm, I'm only a bit, three weeks in to the relationship. You know, she's clearly madly in love with me. I'm just getting his head round it all. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> she says to me, uh, I've read this article, so I want the Daily Mail. Like an article, not that I would read the Daily Mail. And I'm looking going, oh my God, how am I gonna read this? So she's looking at me and I'm going like that. 
my head's going everywhere. I'm thinking, what would it take five minutes to do this? So I'm like going, looking at the clock, going, two minutes. So I get put it down, the arc. Yeah. She goes, you didn't read that one. <laughs> and that was me. Imagine that little six-year-old boy's stomach just going into spasm. Somebody I really like just going, you can't read. Nobody had ever done that to me before. Mm. And I just froze. And she gave me a hug and I was like, tears running down my mm. eyes. Cause this, so I is that when you opened up, was it? A little, yeah. And she said to me, you're dyslexic, aren't you? I went, yeah. And I immediately into a mode of, do you still want to go out with me? Mm. She went, why? Because you think I'm stupid. Mm. She went, no, I think you're brave. She says, I'm, I'm the opposite to stupid. You are a brave individual. And she gave me that little bit of self-esteem that I never had before from that period. And then after that, she said, you've got to do something about it. I'm, I'm not doing anything about it. I'm not doing it. Just leave me alone in that front. I've opened to you. I'm not doing it. Mm. And then we'd go on a holiday and I'd be relaxed. You go, come on, you, you, you never say, you never give up on anything. Why are you giving up on something that can make a big impact in your life? Yeah. And then I went through a course that helped me, uh, um, physical literacy course, which is all about movement. And suddenly within about six, seven months, I started to take in words and started to read better and started to, you know, I could process things a lot easier. And then about when I was about 30, I then started speaking out openly about it to help kids, and I didn't want kids to feel like I did, like closed and, and adults. And I had thousands of kids and thousands of adults come to me and goes, I think I'm dyslexic. I've just listened to you, and like, this has really changed my life because I, I don't feel stupid anymore because mm. you've spoken about it. Mm. So I just got a bit of a champion on it. And then during all that period, I was an international rugby player playing for Wasps and, and also set up my sports marketing agency because the, the reason I had to set that up is because Who's going to give me a job? You know, and I set that up when I was 26, 27. And, um, you know, part of that, my big thing was bringing good people into my business. You know, I was good at this job. But I wasn't good at these other bits. And I, got, I learned that from being a sportsman. You can be the best player on the pitch, but you still need a prop. You still need a hooker. You still need a scrum half. And you still need that gobby standoff or whoever. You still need a, a, a team environment. So I was like, determined to build a good team around me. And and even when you know when I first met Paul, business partner, he had no clue. He just went, why don't we get to phone me up all the time? You know? And he never gets back to any emails. And then and then I had I was brave enough to tell him. And he was like, Yeah, fine. I was like, really? Is it not a big deal? No, fine. At least to know what you like. At least to understand you now. Yeah, good for you, mate. Well done for opening up. That's massive. Yeah, no, that's I, massive. And, do you know what was interesting? I did my my book. And when I did the book, I was really excited about doing this book. And when I started going back to my education, and I got really deep into how I felt, I had to stop the book. I was really upset. I was really, I was upset because I wasn't brave enough. I wish I'd been brave. And I say to kids, don't be scared to say what's in your head. Be brave. And you know, if you're brave, you, you make mistakes, but you'll feel a lot better for making little mistakes rather than holding it all up inside mm. and never being brave enough to tell me. Mm. Amazing. Amazing. So what age What age were you when you went to Wasps? Uh, 24. 24. And how long were you there for? Uh, eight, eight and a half seasons. Really? Yeah. So you ended up winning 70 caps for Scotland, yeah. won three titles for Wasps. Mm. What was it like being at Wasps back in the day then? Because that was a powerful team, like Trevor Leota, yeah. Big Lowell. The Lowell. The Lowell. <laughs> what, was yeah, it like I mean, what was it like back then? I mean, to be honest with you, I, um, so when I, Robbie had just gone professional in 95, mm. so I was offered a contract with the Scottish Rugby Union. You know, I was a farmer on four grand a year. SRU came along 50 grand, I was like that. 
Yeah. So I was like really like this is great. Rugby's gone professional after the ninety five World Cup. Jonah Lomo, you know, he was the man that put the game in the market on, on the global platform. And then what happened to me was I still had a farm. I still had cows. I couldn't just give up my job. So I said to Scottish Rugby, I've got 150 cows. I can't just walk away from them. They need me. <laughs> These cows need me. They need milk, man. <laughs> Every milk day, in. twice a day. They need milk in. So, and as my dad wasn't alive then, my brother wanted to come out the farm. So I then decided, right, I'm going to start to change my farm. My aim was to sell all the, sell the, the, the cows off and transition to be a professional rugby player. But the SRU wanted to start immediately, and I couldn't do that. And then I had Sale, Newcastle, uh, Leicester, uh, Harlequins, London Scottish saying, right, we'll give you 80 grand, 70 grand, whatever the number was. And But I said, I, I can't do it until the end of the season. And Walsh came along and said, Rook, we'll give you 150 grand a year, which was like, wow. oh my God. Wow. And we'll, we'll, we'll also um, let you come down on a Thursday, train, train Thursday, train Friday, play Saturday and go back to the end of the season. Wow. Just come down and perform. Mm. So I was like, brilliant. So I had 10 games and I came down my first game, five tries in my debut thinking. Is that right? Yeah. Against, against Oral. Oral. Yeah. yeah. And I thought, <laughs> I don't know what they're talking about there. This is a doddle down yeah. here. Yeah, yeah. And I went back up and then, but I was also threatened by Jim Telfer saying that if you leave Scottish rugby, you'll never play again. What, for Scotland? Yeah. Mm. And I said, ah, I doubt that, Jim. Yeah. He went, you trust me, you won't. Yeah. So I come back and following week, five tries, and going, all right, Jim. <laughs> so I get picked, and he says to me, first chance, you're out. So I had about 10 good games, and I came in against France, didn't play that well, and I looked at him, and he went, I went, fair enough. So he dropped me for the week, and then I was back in the following week. And um, So my transition to be at Wasp was brilliant. I'd gone to, to a team with Alex King, Joe Worsley, Paul Volley, wow. um, you know, Will Green, uh, Lawrence Delalio, um, Rob Henderson, Alex King, uh, Fraser Walters, mm. these, all these great players. Mm. And um, at the time, I was going to go to the Scottish because they were offering me more money. Is this what? Is this the time while you were at Wasp, that part of that eight years? Yeah, so okay. right at the start. Okay. So my first signing on at Wasp, London Scottish were trying yeah. to get me, but yeah. they were involved in the league. And I'm thinking, look at this team. This, yeah. is, this is what I want to be. Yeah. I want to be tested. I want to be in an environment where I'm not the big, the big fish. Yeah. I want to be a small fish. I want to grow. And I want that opportunity to play with some of the best players. Yeah. And then I ended up that season, you know, having like scoring for 14 tries or something, 10 games. I had an unbelievable wow. end to the season. And playing, I mean, you know, we talk about Trevor Liotta. My God, he what was unbelievable. A beast. He was a beast. First training session, with the word of a lie. He turns up, he's got a black bag, pair of socks, pair of flip-flops, and two pairs of pants. Where have you come from? Samoa. Where's your kit? Lifts his bag up. <laughs> like and uh, nobody really knew much about him. Yeah. But I'd played against him the week before for Samoa, and we could see this guy was a rocket. And first train session, I come right through the middle. He pops up. Poof, I'm clotheslined. All I can hear is like 30 people laughing. And uh, I'm like totally concussed out of it. For the next 10 minutes, I'm running around like with a whole lot of black jerseys. I could have been running around like anywhere. And he just was an impact. And well, then that was well, the he start was like, of it. Well, he was like super fast. What was he, five foot five, 20 oh, stone? 20 stone. No neck, that was when like... he was fit. He was 148 kgs, five foot five, five foot six. He, when, they, when they built him, they forgot about his neck. They stuck his yeah. head in his shoulders. Yeah. He had no neck. Yeah. And his head was, must be about five stone. Is it true when training sessions, people didn't want to, 
let him tackle him? No, so what happened was, uh, we used to have a yellow jersey and a red jersey. So the first time, we're all, you, you, you turn up nine times out of ten, if you were a red one one day, a yellow, a yellow one the next, they would be swapping, and mm. the numbers would be much the same. Mm. So we started to get the jerseys all washed on the same day, and we're looking around, he's in red. <laughs> so we put a red jersey on, and we'd come out and, and get, um, um, who was the coach? It was Nigel Melville going, you've all got red jerseys on. Yeah. <laughs> Can you go and swap them? Trevor comes, goes, we'll all go back in to get different jersey. We all come back in yellow. <laughs> and they go, what's wrong with Whatever he's wearing, we're, we're wearing. Yeah. So he went through a phase that he, he wasn't allowed to tackle. But if you annoy Trevor, the th things to annoy Trevor, hit him, um, look at him the wrong way, look at his food or not feed him. Right? I mean, I remember one training session, he, he ordered, ordered a Kentucky Fried Chicken takeaway to come at the end of the training session, and they turned up with four buckets. And we were going, legend, Trevor, <laughs> like thinking it was for us. Yeah. They were all for him. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And he just sat there and chewed the bones, yeah. threw the whole bucket. Um, but he was also an individual who, you know, Nigel Melville said to him, look at Trevor, hasn't drunk all season. He'd been drinking pints of brandy and Coke yeah. all season, yeah. but the coaches all believed that he hadn't been drinking. Mm. And I'm sure he was driving us all over the end yeah, of the night, yeah, yeah. you know? But he was a, he was great, but you know, we had Lowell. I mean, <laughs> Lowell was like- Tell me about Lowell. Well, what can I tell you about Lowell? I mean, he was a character of men. I mean, he was, whatever you did, you know, on and off the field, you tend to be following him to a certain degree. We stopped uh, later on in the years, didn't want to go where he was going. But I remember once, um, when, the, when the season, when the professional started, on the Thursday nights, he still went out in the beers. So Friday was like, turn up at training, like, you know, one-eyed, and they put winning the Saturday. And we won the league that season. So every Thursday night we're out. The following season, we're out every Thursday, exact same. Not going as well. Boys are a bit bigger, put a bit more weight on. Um, start to slide down the league. And uh, Lawrence comes in to us and says, listen, boys, been with the board, not happy. Got to start going back up the league. He says, so we can't, we've got to stop drinking on a Thursday night. We're like, oh. He goes, but we can do Wednesday instead. <laughs> Quality. And in fairness to Lawrence, genius idea, because it just gave us an extra bit of recovery back up the league again. So Wednesday night was a perfect night. It was yeah. students' night too. Student night. I used to have a club in Wandsworth. I used, used to go there. Yeah, I think all you, well, I knew all you boys used to come there. It was all the London Irish boys, all the Quins and all yeah. the Wasp boys come every Tuesday night. We used to bring a trophy there every year. Yeah. It's the, yeah. of the yeah. Irish boys off. That's right. Quins off. That's right. So what, what was life after rugby like? You've had brilliant time at Wasp. Your career's coming to an end. <clears throat> what were you thinking? What were you thinking while you were a rugby player to go? Right, I need to find something to do when I when I leave. Well, I was. I, I knew that I was. My passion. I'd go back to farming. I love. I love being in the land. I love being outside doing stuff. But I knew that wasn't the case. That wasn't going to happen. And I'd met so many interesting people playing rugby. You know, I'd be finishing the game. I'd go up into the box, meet meet the sponsors, and and then I saw a lot of people doing stuff for these sponsors, not doing them very well. And I thought it must be. I, I could do this better. I, you know. So I started right at the start with my PE teacher, because he was in Scotland, and we started these rugby camps, this tackle rugby with Kenny Logan, and we'd started these camps. And they were really profitable camps, and I had 200, 300 kids every week. And then as the game was getting more professional, I didn't have the time to do it. So I just said, you just have that, and you know, just give me some. Yeah. And then he was a really good lad, I ended up just giving it to him. Yeah. Um, he went on and continued doing it. And then I realized I need to do something down in England, and then set up sort of small events business, taking high-end people to really high-end events and creating something different and primarily some stardust at these events. Mm. 
And then as that grew, I then realized that I needed to get somebody to help me grow that. And that's when I met business partner Paul Sefton, who has become like him and I are like best mates. And he's become somebody that I really trust and he trusts me. So it was never really, f and, and then the more he got to know me, it was easier for him to go, right, I know what he's good at, I know yeah. what he's not good at. Yeah. I know what he needs to do and I know what I need to do. And we worked well together and he then said, right, this is what we need to do to business and let's do this and let's use your contacts into sponsorship and um, strategy and all that and giving you the, the, the tools to go and to find these people and, and move things forward. And then we started doing deals with Microsoft and EY, Ernst & Young, EY and Tag Heuer and started having big brands. And then as that was going on, and probably in the last three or four years, um, you know, I was, I was also still playing rugby. I was five years, I was 27, 28 at the time. So I just said, like, you know, you, you go on and run with it. I'm going to play rugby and bring the contacts in. And we built the business like that. Um, the business has changed a lot as we've moved forward because the beauty about having a small business, you can change. You, know, you can move. Nimble. Nimble. Mm. And I've always been loads of ideas in my head and come up with ideas and come up with um, opportunities and joining people up into opportunities. So then, that then came into us looking at other things, you know, and I suppose through this whole... Um, period we're in now with COVID, it's an opportunity to, you know, there's a lot of negative stuff going out. We've got to think, where's the positives? How can we change and do things differently? And what we've been looking at now and over the last couple of years is finding some things in our sectors that we can help them grow, take some equity in it and invest in it, or um, take a, create some new opportunities like National Fitness Games, NFG which we, again, getting back to the team environment, that's where we tried to bring in, look at, we, we stumbled across it through a client of ours wanted us to look at the fitness industry. And we looked at the fitness industry and didn't see a, a competition that was rivaling maybe CrossFit or mm. um, creating something new. So, so before we, before we uh, move on to this, just talk to me about uh, Strictly Come Dancing. Was that ha did that happen when you finished your rugby career? Was it one or two years after yeah, that? Or was it? That, that was a mistake, that really was. Was um, it? We were the first um, couple to do Strictly Come Dancing, married couple. And uh, Gabby was having to meet with the BBC, and I was going to pick her up. And I go pick her up, and the lady says, um, Would you like to do it? I went, <laughs> No chance. Mm -hmm. Can I hear the beat of the music? Yeah. Never mind. Do Strictly, so we really want you both to do it. And Gabby's like, come on, you you love it, you love it. And I was like, no, I'm not interested. Are you are you a, when you when you go to a club back in the day, you a person to stand at the bar and have a look and a, and have a couple of two steps, or you a person to get right in the mix and dance? Two steps, yeah, to oh, the bar. Same, yeah, same. <laughs> not interested. No, yeah, no yeah, I was yeah. like that. No. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, I'm not. I'm not a mover. Yeah, yeah. And then when I first when Gabby first watched me playing, see me doing all these feet movements before the ladder, she going, oh, I must be good in the dance floor. Look at his steps. Yeah. <laughs> Big mistake. Big mistake. <laughs> so I I um. So she said, just have a think about it. And I was like, oh. you know, I was like four months out. Because they come to you early. Come to the ones you want early. And then you've got a sign disclosure. You won't talk to anybody about it. So it gets announced. But at the same time, I just signed a contract for ITV to do the 2007 World Cup commentary. Okay. So I said, look, I can't do it. Because there's no way I can do a Saturday night rugby match or a Sunday night rugby match. And the dates are never going to be able to they're going to clash. She said, well, check them out. So I looked at them all. The only way I was going to get Strictly Come Dancing was Scotland to beat the All Blacks. So I signed up. So I was in the commentary on that, and then we started it. First week, I was in the dance-off. First week. And I managed to get saved, and I thought, right, I've got to put some shift in here. I don't want to be embarrassed. And I did 
I think I did eight, nine weeks without a day off. Wow. My dancer lost weight. I lost weight too, but she lost weight. Not that she needed to lose weight, but she said she'd never been trained as hard. Because I, you know, I was rubbish. Gabby was really good. She's like coming home going, I love it. Yeah. I love it. I'm going, I'm green. I'm green. <laughs> I hate it. And like, you get, I hope I get voted out. And then you get to the, the game day and you're like, I'm not getting voted. I'm not going out. And then I just managed to get myself through it. I got to week nine. So I got to the two dances. So how does it, how does it work again? Do you, did you, week one, can you get kicked off so, week one? So or? when we did it, it yeah. was week one. Yeah. And you, you, you went into a dance off. Yeah. And then you were voted off by the, the judges, same as you are now. And then if you ever got in the bottom two, you were out. Okay. So it was the same. And I didn't get to the bottom two again until I got to the last five or the last four. Is that right? Yeah. Well and Gabby got voted out in the middle. Did she? <laughs> but it went down like yeah, a... Yeah, no, it was really good. Because she had to <laughs> yeah. come every week going, oh, no, another week. Yeah. She's clapping the audience. She hated it. Did she? I mean, secretly, yeah. she was fuming. What, she hated actually dancing on the show? No, she, or she hated being show. kicked out before she you? It. She was like one of the favourites. Is she quite competitive? Yeah. Hugely. Yeah. Yeah, hugely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And... Uh, I was just giving it, it's not my fault the public let me more than you. It's just like it's facts we are. But <laughs> sweet are. Sweet heat. <laughs> sweet heat, yeah. Um, so then it was a brilliant show. It's good crack. You know, you, yeah. you, um, you know, everybody's walking around G strings and you're, and you're like, oh my God, <laughs> don't look away. But when you look away, you're like, oh, there's another one. Um, but it's a great show. I, I loved it. Yeah. In the end, I loved it. Would I do it again? No. Because it was, it was, I mean, I've never been so scared. Behind the, you, when you're not a dancer and you're not good at it, yeah. and you know at the end of the three minutes or the one minute thirty, you're going to get slagged off by, yeah. by um, the judges, especially Craig, and Craig was brilliant because he used to always apologise after, because yeah. <laughs> I, I thought I was going to give him a doing, but I, 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 Craig was brilliant, really liked him, he's a good crack, uh, Arlene and and Len, um, but at the same time, when you're doing the show, I'll never forget the back, of, you know, you're, you're going on and you're trying to think of your moves. And the music goes, and it's like, moves gone. Really? Can't, but your body takes over because yeah, okay. you're programmed. Yeah. Uh, good or bad. Uh, and I thought, that's, that's great. I can dance. You went, no, no, you can do the steps. You look, you don't look good. Yeah. You look like, you know, Robocop. Yeah. And uh, where Gabby was like, loving it. And she was like flying through six, eights, nines, whatever else. And I was on the fives, the fours, the twos. Um, and I got to, I got, when, I, when I got voted out, I was, I'm out. I had two dances in a week. Yeah. Hard to do one in a week, but yeah. two. So you have to learn a new dance for that following Every week. week. Is that, wow. Yeah. Okay. And they pick the dance that for must you. Put, that must put pressure on, right? There's a lot of pressure. Nerves, pressure, everything going with that. The ner I think the, the good thing with the sports people, they can handle the pressure yeah. of the nerves. Yeah. They know how to cope with it. It's about how you, I mean, most of the rugby players and sports people have all done really well. So you, fin you finished that. What was the next move then? You set up with your, with your, with your best mate. Uh, Paul, setting up Logan Sports Marketing. Just tell me a little bit about London Scottish and tell me a bit about that fraudster who got in contact with you. Um, I was heavily involved. Well, I played two games from at the end of my rugby career. I retired and then one of the sponsors decided to pay me some money to come out of retirement. I said, I'm not doing it. And then he went, I went, I'll come out for two games. Yeah, okay. And I... They, they are a club trying to at the time we were in fourth division. So and tell me what year tell me what year this was? God, that was two thousand and five, maybe. Two thousand five. And London Scottish are based in Richmond. Based in Richmond. Yeah. And they were on the verge of well, not on the verge, we're getting promoted every year. Yeah. So with a lot of like Chairman of Tesco's, David Reed, Malcolm Offort, 
and a lot of private individuals who were all Scottish, who were all wanted, Scottish to back wanted to get back. Okay. And they were getting promoted every year and they got sponsorship. Yeah. And then we obviously we got some sponsorship and we're looking for a front of jersey sponsor. It's a company called Saudex, Saudex Global, I think it was. And um, this guy came in and the deal was done within two days. And I'm going, you don't do a sponsorship deal in two days. Cash was in. And then he later on they realized that this guy this guy had basically he did pay the club the money, mm. but he was he was a bit of a fraudster. Okay. And then he went to actually he then went to London Welsh. Did he? That's yeah. just up the road, didn't yeah, he? Yeah, London Welsh. Yeah. And he did the same to them, but he took a lot of money from them. Um but the, the games sadly the, the problem with the you know, it happened at the rugby lines, yeah. it's happened at a lot of clubs that yeah. people come in, false documentation, they get people to put money in. Yeah. And, they take it and the thing about London Scottish, they were lucky because they didn't lose any money from it. Good. Um, but I know other clubs did lose money from people like that. So were the people coming in, because I've seen it before, people coming in saying, I'm going to bring big investment from abroad and I'm going to put half a million quid on the table. Is that, is that kind of the chat? Yeah, and I think you're getting back to honesty. Um, it's interesting because as a rugby player, you watch a game of rugby, you play rugby on a Saturday afternoon and then the Monday you're in front of a room, in a room with your peers, Going through the game, what were you doing there, Kenny? Dodge, why did you miss that tackle? Or oh, thought it was on to no, it wasn't on, was it? You missed it. So you get put in the spot immediately, and you've got to sort that out in a week. But when you move into the business world, there's a lot of bullshit. There's a lot of people, and people believe it rather than dig down. And sometimes they don't want to dig down because they don't want to believe it is bullshit. They, they, they get caught up in that fancy world. And I think a lot of these clubs get caught up in it, you know. Um, and, and sadly, lower clubs who uh, need the money get caught up and see the flash car or the guys hired that car for the day and he comes in and he just, you know, I know Robbie Lyons went through it, London Welsh went through it and it's same with London Scottish had a little bit of it, but we were lucky in that sense. Do you, do, you, do you find that's a bit of naivety in business from the rugby clubs themselves or is it kind of flashing lights, Range Rovers, helicopters, fine wines and all of a sudden someone's treating all the players and taking them to the races and doing all these lovely things. Does everyone actually just believe that this is the real deal. Yeah, I think they do. I think they really do believe mm. it. I think getting back to what you said earlier, you've got you've got to dig deep into these people. Mm. And um, you know, when you start to have people putting false websites, false bank accounts in front of these clubs, you know, they're, they're moving into it. I mean, I had um, a meeting with a, a junior rugby club a couple of months ago, and they were talking about investment. And the first thing I said to them is, "Got to make sure the investment is there. You've got to do so much diligence on these people. Do not believe what they're showing you." Get do more digging than you can imagine, because if you don't, you'll get caught up, and your rugby club will be gone, and then you'll be the one to be seen to take them down that yeah. path. So, yeah. and they, and by the way, there's a lot of good people out there. There's a lot of good people. Just you know, moving on to those good people, I think Nigel Ray is an absolute brilliant, brilliant owner of a rugby club. And okay, he's 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 paid more money to the players. He's looked up, but he genuinely cares about the players, and he genuinely cares about them off the field and on the field, and. I personally think that's the way rugby should go. I know he overspent. Yeah, I, I, I think one thing I would say, I would hate somebody like um, Nigel to be seen as, a, you know, what's happened yeah. at Saracens because the, what he's put into the game, into the charities, into the players around the game has been phenomenal. And he's one of the nicest guys you'll meet. So I don't think I would ever want to sit here and go, well, Nigel Ray was part of that Saracens that, you know, they cheated, they got greedy, and they, they, they moved the, the goalposts so far apart. Where I'm not saying all the other clubs haven't done slightly the same sort of thing, but they'd gone so far by it. And that's the sad bit for me. 
because what he's done at Saracens has been phenomenal. The Saris were Division Two team, you know, they were sort of up and down, and and he's 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 built a, a, and he's put so much money into yeah. that club. Yeah. You know, and he's not going to get it all back. He's not going to get anything. He's going to get anything back. There's no but, money to be earned in rugby. But what he's what he's done is he's wanted to leave a legacy at that rugby club. Yeah. And I, I genuinely hope that Saracens can go down, come back, and 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 forget about what's happened in the past and create what he's left them because he's a, he's a nice, he's a good individual. Yeah. And I say he's helped many many players. You know, I know when when Doddy Weir got done with motor neuro disease, mm. you know, he, um, he was the first one to put his hand in his really? pocket. You know, and he's. He cares about the game, and, and, and it must hurt him a little bit. And and does he, did he know it was it was going as much as that? I don't know, but um, I do feel for him in that sense. I feel for him, and I think he's done. A, I think he's a wonderful man. Yeah, because he job. looks after people, and in business you have to look after people. You get back if you look you after get back, people. and that's what he's done. And I think he's an absolute legend. Whatever's gone on's gone on. Absolute legend of a guy. Um, just moving on to your mate Doddy. Mm. How's he getting on? Um, he's he's almost. Um, four years in now yep. of um, M&D, motor neural disease. Um, I saw him, uh, when I say him, about a month ago, I went up yep. to Scotland to see him just before the, before we could go and see people. And he was, uh, you know, he's still walking. His arms are not um, functioning very well, but he's still talking. His spirit is phenomenal. Yep. Um, he's raised so much money for M&D and he's, and he's making real change. You know, he's, um, I really would love to see us make change um, soon because yeah, I'd like them to see that for the efforts he's put in. But he's a fighter, and he's got the world of M&D together, and that, I think that's one thing that he's got to stand up and stand, stand proud with, because he, he was the one that pulled all these researchers together and pulled M&D together and said, look, we need to work together, not work as individuals, and all saying, look at me, look what I've done. And, and that's, that's what he's achieved so far. They will find something. Will they find it? In time for Doddy to see it, I'm, I'm doubtful of that. But he, he's definitely put the, the wheels are moving fast, and um, the money he's, he must have raised. I mean, I don't know officially, but it's it's well over six million. He's raised six now. million. Is that yeah. what he's done? Yeah. What an unbelievable human yeah. being he is. Amazing. Let's move on to uh, your business you're involved in at the minute. Talk to me about National Fitness Games. Well, I'm actually I can bring one of the founders of National Fitness Games in along with me which is um, Mark. So I, I came out of the back of, um, we, we had a client and basically the client was looking for the fitness industry to put their product in, 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 in that sort of functional fitness. So we did loads of research and we sort of didn't really see much going on as in a competition. Mm. You obviously got CrossFit, which is a phenomenal um, story. And we just sort of thought there must be an opportunity there. And bizarrely, um, at the same time, Mark, who's just joined us now, Mark Morgan. Hello, Mark. So Hello. Mark's been welcome, a welcome, like, welcome. Like Mark's been a mate of mine for a long time, yep. and also a mate of Paul's. And um, he came in with a similar sort of concept. I'm thinking about this sort of tournament, and we were like, "Whoa, we've just had the same idea." And and then that sort of like we sat down and looked at how we could create something that for you know, if you think about people who go to the gym, somebody goes to the gym and training the bike, and somebody just weights and somebody does a bit of cardio and somebody does a bit of strength and agility what what are they for these people to sort of have a competition for and i suppose what ended up happening was nfg was starting to really bubble and we started to get quite a lot of excitement and mark's background i mean you should talk about yourself mark more than me but his background in nutrition and and the fitness world was was a compliment getting back to building a good team he was a perfect 
partner to yeah. work with. Okay, so the National Fitness Games, just explain to me what the National Fitness Games is. Is it an actual tournament? Is it a, a mix between CrossFit and uh, functional fitness? And is it a day tournament? Is it a two-day tournament? Is it an event? Is it a festival? How, what, are you, what are you visioning for this? It's very much a, a, a community sort of fitness event. So we, we love CrossFit, right? We love what CrossFit stands for. We love the excitement that CrossFit brings. The, the slight issue with CrossFit is if, if you don't train in a CrossFit gym, then you are re- you're, you're kind of unable to enter a CrossFit competition because they have certain movements in CrossFit that, that, that are exclusive to that as a, as a form of training. So for example, if, you, if in CrossFit there's a thing called a double under, which is when you skip, you skip twice basically as the rope goes round, that isn't really a definition of fitness. It's just a specialist move to CrossFit. So you could enter, obviously you're pretty fit yourself, Dodge. You could enter a, a CrossFit competition. Got that weight on Looking pretty ripped to me. <laughs> Thank you, Jen. Thank you. <laughs> you. You could enter this competition and then you could, you could basically lose to someone else because you can't do a skip. Yeah. So we're trying to create a competition that could see a CrossFitter take on a rugby player, take on a powerlifter oh, like to it. really find out who's the fittest. Okay, I like it. So mm. you're, giving it, you're basically giving it a twist. It what's your what's your how many years has it been going for so it's been going about three just over three years uh we started off we we that meeting i had with kenny and paul we we've been looking to do business together for about about so is this years. is this your idea yeah well it was kind of an idea that came out of that first meeting so we went into that meeting we were like i said we've always looked to try and do business together and it came in that meeting and we and we basically were, were both working on the same idea okay so about i'd say about eight weeks after that first meeting we were standing at Loughborough on a Friday, setting up for our first event. Yeah, okay. And it was it was it was crazy, wasn't it? I mean, we we ended up that first event. We had we had about uh, I'd say about 160 athletes that took part in that part yeah. in that first event, and we've grown it. So last year we had about 700 competitors. Good for you. And then this year, due to COVID, we we're only allowed maximum 300, but we sold out, uh, and we put an event on about uh, yeah just before. Uh, it was sort of middle of September. Yeah. Um, What's the one I came to? Yeah, that, that one. was the, uh, that was the third yeah. one. Yeah. yeah. So we managed. To that was um, that was very well run and very well organised. I thought. Hmm. And we managed to put that on, you know, in in the height of COVID, which, yeah. which I think was uh, was a uh, you know testament no, you, you to done, our team. You've done so. a good job, and it was yeah. presented very well. And I think the brand is very strong. Hmm. Um, it's just interesting to see where you want to go with the brand now. Do you have Kenny? So where do you think we should go? Um. I'm not too sure, really. When I when I come up there and you and I were chatting for hours, the three of us around the side of the pitch and, and watching everything, I was taking everything in. After obviously that's my world, and it's interesting to see where you want to go. Mm. Where do you where do you envisage it being? Do you envisage it being in its own festival site? Do you envisage in one day having ten thousand competitors? What is the goal here? I, f- I think it's important to say at that event you came to, Dodge, that. What I want, the vision I have for this this event is you have a you have an absolute machine, an absolute beast of an athlete yeah. doing a workout, and next to him is a sixty five year old woman who's doing her first fitness competition. Yeah. We really want to be like the fitness event that is open to everyone, yeah. whether you're like I said. Yeah, it's not about the elite; it's about no. getting people involved. Yeah, yeah. perfect, no. Ma- massively. I tell you, what, I saw some lumps there though. Oh yeah, there's there some, there some yeah. big boys, then big girls there. Well, we had like we did, you know, in one workout, you had you had an ex Premier League footballer in Sylvain Distan, and you had an ex rugby international. What was the the guy from Worcester? Fijian guy. Samo- yeah, Samoan guy, I think he was. We had a can't, Olympic snowboarder. Can't, his name. <laughs> can't read it. <laughs> <laughs> 
done. I'm done. <laughs> we had an Olympic snowboarder and an Olympic swimmer. Yeah. And then literally they finished the workout and then the next group came in and we had a 65-year-old woman, a 55-year-old guy. And it was just, that's, that's the vision. Yeah, you know, brilliant. Open to everyone. And the feedback from the point of view of, and the other thing we're trying to do at the event is make it feel that they're coming to something that's almost not professional but like it's got that real level it's not just a, in the park yeah. it's, it's proper there's physios yeah. there there's rehab there yeah. you know so people can touch what it's like to mm. be a, a, a top-end athlete mm. and interestingly michael jameson the olympic silver medalist swimmer he said to me he hadn't had the feeling like this since he competed yeah he said, I turned up and went wow mm. this is a proper competition yeah. and at the same time you've got the 65 year old going never done one of these before yeah. i've loved every minute of it yeah so we're trying to give these gyms something to train for, yeah. you know, and, and, and getting to what we're talking about in the vision is, yes, we want a thousand competitors, but I think we're, we're probably not ready to talk about where we are going to be because there's so much moving, but it will grow, it will become a situation where yeah. we'll have five, six thousand people there, Yeah, you know, and we've got and that's a the go- That's the goal, is it? It has to be the goal. Yeah. And but can you, Kate, when you're looking at an event like that, obviously it's an individual sport or a, a team sport of maybe three or four people, correct me if I'm wrong, but do you believe that is the way forward to have one big national fitness games in the centre of the country, in Loughborough, once a year? And what are you going to add to that event to attract more people? So, so yeah, the, the, the festival or the, or the event we're going to create in September next year is, is going to... We're going to bolt on other like-minded events so you know like you said you might go to the gym you might train really hard you might like lifting weights but you might train with someone who actually prefers just rowing or just running but you've got the same mentality you're, mm. you're part of the same fitness community mm. so we want to create a series of or, or additional activities on that day so no matter who you are or what type of fitness you like there'll be something there for you so we're looking at yoga we're looking at indoor rowing we're looking at indoor cycling we're mm. looking at powerlifting, all around our main event yeah. just to make it bigger and bigger and yeah. bigger but, but also there'll be regional events yeah building up to that yeah yeah so we want to we want to basically throughout the whole year give give people the reason to train yeah. so we all go to the gym we'll put a lot of time and effort into it mm. you don't want to just do that for, do for you? no reason do you uh, sometimes <laughs> Not so as much as a way. It's got <laughs> three stone there, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> Needs to be. <laughs> Quality. Mate, it's out, it sounds really, really interesting. I, and, you know, I went up there and uh, had a talk on stage with Gabby up there and it was really well presented, very professional. I thoroughly enjoyed it. I think you're onto something there, lads. Um, a few little tweaks here and there and I think it could be a, a, a more of a success than it is already and it's going to grow 100%. So just to, just to finish up here, being married to Gabby, what a lovely lady she is. What's it, um, what's it like being married to someone who's in the spotlight the whole time? Um, I've not known her. Yeah, that's all I've known. So from an age of nine, maybe 16, 17, even locally when I was growing up, I was this young kid who might play for Scotland. So you got recognised. Like when, when I lived in my little pocket in Stirling, you know, you'd walk around and you'd be in the local paper all the time. So you got used to a bit of that. And I suppose when, you start, when I started... Um, moving to London and playing for Scotland, you got more aware of what's happening around you and you've got responsibility and, you know, you can't just, um, thank God for mobile phones when we on the go when I was younger. But it's certainly, for Gabby now, it's, it's a different world for her. You know, she's one of the best around. Um, she's mo- the most unbelievable professional. Yeah. You know, it's not so much um, what you see in the TV from her, um, it's what she does behind it, like mm. the work she does to put into that show. Yeah. Um, she 
she'll if the if the script goes down, she'll know it off by heart. Yeah. She writes a lot of it herself. She's really in it. She doesn't cut corners, which um, sometimes you know I'd maybe look at certain periods of my life and maybe cut a corner, mm. and now I probably wouldn't do that. Mm. Um, but she's she's a great person, great mum. Uh, two great kids, and uh, we're a good team. Yeah, brilliant. And she juggles uh, a lot, doesn't she? She's a busy woman. She likes to be busy. How does she keep you in line? I think she, she thinks I'm in line. <laughs> so uh, let's just keep it at that. <laughs> Quality. Right, let's wrap this up. Kenny, it's been an absolute pleasure having on the uh, show today. Thoroughly enjoyed you having here, buddy. Mate, thanks for having me, and good luck. It's brilliant. I've listened to one podcast, your yeah. first one. Really good. I haven't got down to the last ones yet, but um, keep up the good work, mate. Yeah. It's very inspiring. Yeah, lovely. And just before we finish... Have you got one question for me? What does it take to become a good businessman? I think you went through it earlier, mate. Honesty, loyalty, hard graft. That's what happened to me then. <laughs> <laughs> hard graft, mate. And, and and you have to see an opportunity. Yeah. It's a difference between being a businessman working for someone and a businessman and an entrepreneur. You know, but you have to see the opportunity and you have to go and get it and you have to put the hours and put a proper shift in. But it's all about doing your homework. And you everyone can find out everything you want these days. No excuses. There's no it? excuses. There's no excuses. And it's about building a brand. A brand is vital in business. You know, businesses come and go, but brands stay. And brand is what what people talk about, your brand when you're not in the room. Tell Gabby when I get back. Yeah. But good luck with Gabby as well. She's doing the podcast mid Midpoint. Midpoint. Yeah. And that's for Well, it's the midpoint of your life is it's called the the midpoint. Yeah. It's between 40 and 57. Yeah. So okay. what are you in the middle of it? Well, <laughs> no, she's loved it actually. She's had some great, great guests. Yes. Um, and again, that's come out of lockdown. She yeah. probably wouldn't have. And she's writing a book. Yeah. So I think one thing I've noticed about um, certainly we've been going at 100 miles an hour. Mm. Lockdown came along, and we've all sort of sat back and went <laughs> like that, rather than going right. This is you know, this is, it could be a different opportunity. Yeah. You might not do what you used to do, mm. but there'd be something else that you think this is what I want to do now, and this is I feel better for it. It's yeah. a change of life, a reset, yeah. and I think we've got to take the positives out of it, mm. not the negatives, because mm. you know I'm getting bored of listening to the news yeah. every night. I don't know? watch it. Oh, six months, no news. Not a bad call. I didn't listen to it for about a month, mm. and then it was over the I was over the weekend. I turned it on. I was like, oh my god. Yeah. I'm just bored of it now. Yeah, exactly. I mean, and, and actually, the, the, the news and the papers and the media have got a role to play in this because mm. we've got to turn around. How do, we, how do we come out of this positively? Mm. It's all negative. Yeah. We've got to start looking at positive stories. It's so boring. boring. You know, boring. if you keep knocking people, it's just getting back to uh, just one thing before mm. I finish. Mm. Um, when I was talking to a, a school uh, headmasters and headmistresses about two years ago, it was a, it was a big seminar, 100 and 200 uh, teachers. And the first question to me said, what, what do you think a teacher's role is? And I said, um, teacher's role. I said, well, if I've got a six-year-old kid and I'm giving, to, giving him to you for the next 10 years and he leaves school with no self-esteem, you have failed. So nobody should leave school without self-esteem. That's because that's the power. If you've got self-esteem, you can take on the world. Mm. But if you could, be the, you could be the brightest kid in the world with no self-esteem, yeah. you'll never have that courage. Yeah. And I said, you could be the kid that is dyslexic like I was. I left school with self-esteem that sport gave me. Mm, but the teachers didn't give me that. Mm. I said, so you have failed. And, and, and the first question, and it was bizarre because some teachers got up and clapped, some sat down, mm. some were annoyed because mm. I was pinpointing yeah. them out. And, 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 you know, you need self-esteem and it's mm. anything you do. And we need, we need to come out of this uh, COVID situation with self-esteem and belief. 100%. Let's wrap it up there, bud. 
Thank you, mate. Lovely to have you on the show. Are you paying for lunch? I sure am. Yeah, let's go. For the first. <laughs> Catch you later. <laughs> 